0: Hello, and welcome to the A Conversation with Speaker Series podcast from the Biederman Entertainment and Media Law Institute at Southwestern Law School. I'm your host, Orly Ravid, Director of the Biederman Institute. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations with influential members of the entertainment, sports, and media law industries. Top-notch lawyers and other experts share their own journeys and provide insights into hot-button topics. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to not miss out on new episodes. In today's episode, we hear from four female sports lawyers who've all carved their way into the iconic hub that is the Los Angeles sports scene. These attorneys who are helping shape the sports law landscape right here in Los Angeles discuss a broad range of topics, from immigration and esports to legal issues surrounding the Olympic movement and agency representation. Now, without further ado, Let's dive right into this illuminating conversation with women in sports law.
1: Lindsay and I had the idea of a panel like a year ago, and I think we both had been to some um, kind of mediocre sports law panels. When I was a student, I happened to go to several of them. They were all um, always men. Uh, and mostly the subject was how to be an agent. And mostly the message was, well, you can't be an agent unless your childhood best friend is like a number one draft pick. So I, I just never really felt like I got much out of those. And, um, I think Lindsay might've felt the same. And so we started talking about how great it would be to have a panel of, um, female attorneys that we admired and respected that we could talk about topics that we found interesting and timely. And so, um, that's sort of how this was born. And we're so grateful to Kathy and Mady and Alana to giving us this night because they are so, I have so much respect for all of them. I'm so fortunate that they were able to join us.
2: <laughs> we're incredibly fortunate tonight to have uh, our speakers here. We have Katherine Haight from the Hate Law Group. We have Mady Olivo from Arrent Fox and also Alana Frisbee Hernandez uh, from Wasserman and I'll let them introduce themselves one by one because they'll do a much better job (laughs) introducing (laughs) themselves than I will. Okay.
3: Hello. Oh, okay. Don't need it to be that close. That was the problem earlier, too. Um, I'm Catherine Haight, Kathy Haight. Um, and I actually graduated from Southwestern in 1989. Um, <laughs> um, and I went to law school to be a communications attorney. So it's kind of funny. I ended up at Brian Cave uh, in Santa Monica. Actually, at the time, it was in downtown LA. but um, And stumbled into immigration, had no interest in it, whatsoever. Uh, but somebody was out for maternity leave and they asked me to fill in. And I ended up going, it's kind of interesting. Um, and I left brand Cave, went to an immigration law firm for a few years, and then started my own practice in 2002. And um, our practice is immigration law focused on business and entertainment and sports. So we do that kind of high tech uh, visas for the tech companies, um, but a, a, a sizable practice in entertainment and sports. So we work with a lot of the major studios on getting in actors, directors, uh, the behind-the-camera the people, et cetera. And then we have grown into being one of the biggest sports practices, I think, in the country right now. And we represent teams that are hiring uh, the players which you kind of people don't think about that but they're employees just like anybody else and they need visas and so we handle i think now we have over 100 teams that we work with andor um, and or agencies uh, uh representation agencies we represent uh, major league baseball teams uh, uh, NBA teams, WNBA, NHL, um, indie sports, a lot of esports uh, teams. Uh, it's funny to think that the little e-gamers come in on the same visa that an NBA player comes in on. Um, and then individual sports athletes like, uh, a, a snowboarder, a motocross, that sort of thing, even if they're not, um, playing for a team, they're typically making money through the sponsorships on their jerseys for Oakley or Red Bull or whatever. And so then they require a work visa to do that. So um, that's my world. This is so,
4: this is so interesting. So um, I proudly now say that I've been practicing in sports for over 40 years. I no longer hide my Age, <laughs> and as a result, my story is a little bit different. Um, I, gradu- I I grew up in France. I speak fluent French. I went to French schools, and so I had an international bent. I went to work for a law firm that had that represented professional tennis players and professional basketball players, and they had a spot for a woman doing wills and trusts for the athletes (laughs) and so they hired me and I was there for three weeks and one of the firm's corporate clients in those days this is 1979 there was no recognition of the whole industry of sports of the representation of athletes none of that was acknowledged or understood or accepted and so my partners at my firm, they, they were partners, I wasn't. They, they represented both sides, actually all sides. The, the main partner was a commentator on tennis matches, represented the athletes, and owned a tennis tournament, just to be specific <laughs> about how it was back then. And they also represented this guy who had acquired all of the uh, – the World Cup, the Soccer World Cup, all of the signage around the field and was packaging it with the other major events into a what we now would term a sponsorship package. And because that guy was in France and international, the partners at my firm were like, "Okay, maybe you're going to do this. So I went from being both an estate lawyer and doing sponsorships and literally at the ground floor. When I later on, not much later, went to work for the Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee, I, I'm my family's from here, um, I saw that the form that Latham and, use, Latham and Watkins had used for the Olympic sponsorships copied the form that I had developed for the <laughs> World Cup sponsorships. That's sponsor. so
3: funny. Yeah,
4: but, you know, that's how it is. (laughs)
3: Um,
4: Anyway, so I have worked on the business side of sports. I always try to explain it as not on the labor side. So I'm on the money generating side, although certainly somebody on the labor side would contest that statement. Um, And my practice has evolved based on where the money is. So uh, originally it was sponsorship. Because it was in development. It was very preliminary at that stage. When I went to work for the Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee, I was in charge of our relationships with our sponsors, suppliers, and licensees. And by the way, just in case I forget to say this later or it doesn't come up, if anybody's looking for a job, organizing committees are a hiring machine. And here in Los Angeles, we're going to have LA-28. They probably won't start to hire until 2021, and we potentially might have, but it's a very different structure, the World Cup uh, semis or the finals in 26. The City of Los Angeles is bidding for that. I'm on the uh, Board of Advisors of the Los Angeles Sports and Entertainment Commission that participates in all these bids. Anyway, so um, when I was there, I was in charge of our relationships with sponsors, suppliers, and licensees. Then. I went to be the first employee of women's professional tennis. Uh, at that time, the, all of the amateur sports, <laughs> which tennis was barely out of being, were run in a structure that was all volunteer. There were no employees. The men had hired an uh, administrator person, the same job as mine, uh, probably three years before the women hired me. And then after that, I went to work for a sports marketing company in house. Then I had my own law firm for 19 years. And then I joined Aaron Fox, but those are my employers. The The work that I've always done has related to the money. So after sponsorships, there was some acquisition of events, that kind of thing. I represented Um, buyers and then a lot of television I I do a lot of television work Uh, I represent the tennis channel I do some work for I have done and do do work for Fox uh, on various levels Um, I am currently representing Intel which has two sports products and the worldwide Olympic sponsorship I've represented the Sugar Bowl for 25 years that's an event, but they, the, they approach me to help them with a sponsorship first and then their television rights. Now the whole bull world has completely changed and they no longer control their television mm-hmm. rights. Um, and I'm an arbitrator on the Court of Arbitration for Sport, CAS. And um, I think that's it. I think it's a lot.
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> I know I'm forgetting something, but it doesn't matter. <laughs>
5: Hi, uh, I'm Alana crisby Hernandez, and um, first, thank you for having me. This is a wonderful event, so I'm really happy to be here. Um, so, I sort of fell into sports. Um, I didn't know that this was a field that somebody could work in as an attorney when I was in law school. In fact, I um, thought I wanted to be. You know, a children's rights lawyer and, and fight for education and yeah. and all of that. And I and I did a clinic my third year in law school and represented um, youth in foster care. And I was just like, this is really hard to do every single day. I don't know that I can do this job every day and come home and, you know, feel like I've accomplished something because it just was mentally and emotionally taxing. So I kind of, you know, was getting away from that idea, but still working a little bit in pro bono. And I and I went directly from law school to a law firm in New York um, while I got to a and did uh, commercial litigation for about five years. And one of the partners that I worked with um, had... Worked with um, the various unions, NHL, NFL, NBA on the lockouts, and um, helped develop actually uh, the first collective bargaining agreement for the NBA. And so he had kind of been on the ground floor of things. And he and I worked really closely on a case that had nothing to do with sports. I mean, it was like environmental, you know, litigation and complex financial transactions. So as far from sports as you could get. But. He and I were just, um, he was like a mentor to me and we talked about sports. We both loved basketball and we were, had a deposition in Oklahoma City, went to a basketball game and we just kind of connected. And for whatever reason, he found that there was a job at Wasterman that was opening and the person that was hiring just said, hey, do you know anybody who might want this job? And he knew I was from Los Angeles and knew I like sports and said, why don't you call him? had no, no experience whatsoever. So I did ended up getting the job. Um, and I've been at Wasserman for almost six and a half years, but that's just to say a lot of people sort of fall into being a lawyer in the sports industry. Um, not really looking for it. You just meet the right people at the right time. And, um, that's also to say that the jobs that I think a lot of us do are the same as what you might do in a very different industry. We just happen to work with um, companies in the sports industry or talent that happen to be athletes. So um, I tell everybody, be a good lawyer and you will hopefully find the job where you want to be, but you don't necessarily have to start out working in sports.
4: I say the exact same <laughs> thing. Yeah, same here.
5: That's great advice that... Um,
1: we all have listened to. Um, so, I want to start with Alana because she was my boss. Um, so, and I helped you briefly, but I, I know you work on <clears throat> a ton of different kinds of transactions. So, I just wanted to know if you could tell everyone a little bit about the transactions you work on, the kind of deals, the kind, I don't know if you can disclose any athletes or companies, but just sort of give an idea of the things that you're working on and then what kind of issues have come up recently that are a little bit newer um, to the transactional world?
5: Sure, so um, the group that I'm in at Wasserman is called the Team Sports Division. So we work with um, individual athletes in NFL, um, NBA or basketball overseas, um, baseball, hockey. Uh, We have a ton of broadcasting clients. We represent coaches. Uh, Olympic athletes. So it's, it's a very broad group of um, talent that we're representing. And so I often tell people that my job as the attorney in this division is sort of like a very general attorney. I look at every single contract that our clients are going to sign. So those are marketing agreements, could be with Nike, could be with Adidas, uh, Under Armour, you know, whatever. It could be their apartment lease. I mean, literally every single document that these guys sign, we want to look at because we offer that service as an agency to help our our clients. We do broadcasting contracts, and so that would be with, you know, Fox Sports or ESPN, um, coaching agreements with the professional leagues or um, um, NCAA. This past summer, we did uh, Fred Hoiberg's deal with Nebraska. Um, We, Luke Walton for um, Sacramento Kings, also did the previous Lakers deal. Um, so it's literally every, anything we, I promise you, we tell them anything that you have to sign, please send it to us. It was Russell Westbrook before he got married. I looked at all of his wedding contracts, the one with the, <laughs> with the flowers and the makeup. I, I looked at every single oh one. And so then when I was getting married, I was like, no, I want these terms. And they weren't listening to me about what I wanted, but they did listen for Russell. So, um, it's, it's a very general thing and we do actually, um, I just found out that that Kathy works with some of my colleagues in um, our Carlsbad office for Action Sports, but we help them with immigration matters, and we are not as skilled as an immigration attorney in any of these things. So we really work with outside counsel, but we do kind of help them navigate that. Um, we'll, we'll do help them with trademarking, um, setting up an LLC uh, for loan out companies. So literally every single thing that they would sign, we would help them with. Um, the only thing that we don't do for our clients is Um, work on their finances. We try to separate, you know, money that we're taking from them for like keeping their money safe. So we try to, we tell them, we think it's a conflict of interest. You should get your own person to manage your money, but we will try to manage everything else for them. Um, And yeah, so some of the things that have come up recently that have been sort of interesting um, for us are for women, uh, maternity clauses. So, we, um, with the women's division came into the team sports group, it was previously in our action sports group, um, for a while, and I think January 2017. And from that point, um, we were really, we would look at deals and say, listen, it's not fair that you can terminate a contract for something that you can't terminate a contract for a man, you know, if nine months you're expected to work just as hard, you know, get the same amount of points, not have your compensation reduced, and then you're expected to come back the next day and the day after you have a baby and perform at the same level. And that's just not realistic. Um, For anybody that's had kids, you know, that's really not realistic. And so we made it a point for every single deal that we saw for a female athlete, um, if they had the right to reduce compensation or terminate the agreement, we were going to argue that maternity has to be excluded for that. That's not a valid reason to terminate a contract. Um, it worked for some brands. Um, we N- Nike was one of the, the ones that we could usually count on to include that, and now they are including that for everybody. Um, it worked for a lot of the shoe companies. For for others, we got pushback, and you know, we just sort of had to tell our clients, unfortunately, this is... The way that it's going to be. So, if you are thinking about getting pregnant, you might not have a deal after this part of the term. And um, and I think now that we've had um, Serena go through the process and be just as active and instrumental and influential in in the U.S. and overseas, we can make a point of saying just because somebody's not performing in their sport you can still get visibility or they can still be visible for your brand. And I think we can now make that argument a little bit more because very strong female athletes have done it and proven to be successful. And so now our case is becoming a little bit easier in the last um, couple years. Uh, the other thing that we see a lot, um, and our, our marketing team is asking us about this all the time. And we just a week or so ago sent out a memo to everybody in our company about um, what the various leagues say about CBD. Um, so it's sort of a very gray area. I mean, we were on the phone with one of the unions last Friday and they were saying we're on the one yard line of making this, um, available for our athletes to be able to, to use and for it not to be a problem for them to be able to market this product. Um, some of them It's already fine, like the big three, and I think UFC is fine, and I think it was taken off the um, WADA list maybe last year, I think. Um, So, some sports, right? Yeah, so some sports you could.
4: Yeah, yeah, CBD,
5: and but but most most of the big leagues like the NBA, WNBA, MLB, NFL, still are vehemently CBD, you can't use CBD, even though it's not specifically stated in their drug policies, that's their position. So it's sort of, if a, if an, a player uses it, um, they are taking the risk if THC does show up. Um, and it shouldn't, but you know they're still taking the risk. But um, that's sort of something that we're dealing with pretty frequently. And um, a lot of the various leagues and units have told us they're sort of, very close to getting that, um, handled, but it's, there's, there's a lot of money there for our clients in terms of marketing opportunities. And we're hoping that, um, you know, the research shows that it's something that, uh, leagues and teams shouldn't be, be scared about, but that's one issue that is pretty interesting right now. Mm-hmm.
1: Quick question. So,
5: um, is it, are, are your current athletes
1: getting approached to because I know like Rob Gronkowski is doing it, but he's retired. And so, but it's the current ones as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. And are they signing on? Are they waiting to hear?
5: No, they're waiting to hear. We have one athlete who um, hasn't signed a deal just yet, but she um, is being approached to be a sponsor for a major, you know, CBD company. And um, we've been told by the league that she works, that she's a part of, um, It's probably okay for her to be an ambassador for it generally, you know, safe um, therapy and stuff like that, but we wouldn't advise her to use it is what we are being told. So, um, you know,
2: it's, it's a little wishy-washy, but yes, current athletes are being approached. I can say, yes, that's good advice because (laughs) we have seen those cases come up. So, thank you. Um, Catherine. What a time to be an immigration attorney. <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy um, times. It's very so, crazy. Yeah. Um, we know it's a hot button issue um, under the current administration. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could talk a little bit about how that's impacted your practice, specific to athletes. And then if you could provide some specific examples of the challenges you have faced in regards to that.
3: Yeah. I mean, now it's, it's just very, very different. And you think, and everybody thinks that, you know, it's just the kids at the border getting separated from their parents, which is horrible and awful, but it's really everywhere. And it's even in sports and, um, it's a higher level of scrutiny with respect to whether someone qualifies, particularly the individual athletes. Major league athletes generally are going to get a P visa. Their support personnel, however, are having a much more difficult time. Uh, the imposition of Baja, Buy American, higher American, it was announced. We are applying, or USCIS says, we are applying that to cases. So, someone bringing in a key support person, um, uh, and, and these are generally going to be team, so a hockey team bringing in an ice specialist or a skate specialist or a a coach. Um, USCIS is now saying, in fact, I heard about one case where, without giving all the specifics, a team was bringing in an assistant coach and USCIS said you already have two assistant coaches, you don't need a third and they denied it saying you don't need, so it wasn't even for a legal reason, it was USCIS said you don't need a third assistant coach for one of the major sports and it's like okay, wait a minute, this is nutty, Um, and then just everything that I would say a big thing now is the strategy that you have to do is much more complicated with respect to family members, or it's pretty common in NHL, girlfriends who aren't married, because these, most of the, the guys there are like, you know, 20, 21, 22, they don't want to get married yet, they don't want to have to submit their contracts, there's a lot of people that get, you know, looked at, the marriage pre- prenups and stuff, and so getting in the girlfriend is is complicated now, parents, family members, et cetera, everything is much more complicated, takes a lot longer, um, and so, and the amount of evidence that you have to provide, because this is ultimately, we're pr- preparing a petition that has evidence, and so, So it might be we used to just kind of, you know, this amount of evidence now, it's a lot more evidence um, to show that someone qualifies, whether it's for an athlete, non-immigrant visa or for their green card. Um, And the other, another big thing that's happening is there's now a really big backlog both in case processing and the availability of visas. Those are actually two different things. Um, And so it used to be that, you know, for a super major, I mean, we're working on a green card now for someone who won two Stanley Cups and two Olympic medals, Um, but it's going to take him and his wife probably two years to get a green card and it used to take six months um, and because of the backlogs and and also when we're preparing the case we don't just say hey look on you know look on the internet and you'll see how great this guy is we have to actually actually apply you know include all the stuff about the medals and all the rest um, because we're nervous that they're gonna say no doesn't qualify and that they're not gonna just know or look on online and it's, it's really different. And I would say the Baja argument is, is a, a very um, complicated thing to try and prove that there's no ice specialists here or um, the various support people. It might be a masseuse for a, a key player, something like that. And the other thing is we often also use support Uh, for especially the younger um, athletes like the e-sports kids or even snowboarders or such, they want to bring in their parent. And what we have been doing for for decades is bringing in the parent as a support person, as their manager to manage their day-to-day activities. But now that we have to apply Baja, that there's no American worker who could do the job, it's kind of a a complicated thing that nobody else could do it because mom or dad has to do it because, you know, I guess you can't hire Wasserman. I don't know what, but it's complicated and much more... you know, you have to really think through the strategy now that you used to be able to just get cases through um, much more easily. And then the, the issue about cannabis is, is important because a lot of the sports, you go to Canada, and when you're coming back in, and this is a really big, complicated issue that goes to, to um, kind of, you know, the attorney uh, confidentiality, et cetera, if they're coming back into the country, if they're asked have you ever smoked pot before? And they say, yes, but it's legal in Canada and it's legal in California. Well, you've now admitted to a federal crime because it's still a federal crime. And therefore, since you've admitted to the facts of a federal crime, you are excludable from the United States. And so, you know, we have to say... If we know that that's the case, we have to tell you, you know, you have to be honest. Uh, If we don't know, we're just, and so we're really at the point, and it's been a conflict, I'd love to get your guys' view on this, um, that we say, if you say this, you could be excluded if they ask that. In fact, you probably will be because the border officers are so ornery now. Um, And if you lie, then you're excludable for misrepresentation, so it's your pick let's go on to the next thing that we're going to talk to you about that's going to happen at the border. Because <laughs> um, I don't want them going in front of a border officer if I know they're going to lie. And so it's, it's, it's complicated, and it's tough, and it's difficult from that end. So um, yeah, it's very, very different than it used to be. Very, very different. Um, timing is also an issue. It used to be that you know it, it, that you could do, a, a, let's say a student visa to a, an athlete visa, you get the petition, you file it, you could get it expedited um, and kind of super expedite because there's a two-week expedite that you pay extra for, but even beyond that, we would submit it under the two-week, but then we call the service center and say, hey, this is for so-and-so and they'd go cool and they'd get it done in one day. Um, and then you'd get them over to the embassy, maybe in Toronto or, or Montreal and make some calls and get something through. And now, no, they don't expedite the super expedite, so it's at least two weeks, and if they want to bother you, they send a request for additional evidence, and you're like, no, no, no. And then the time it takes to go through security at the post takes longer as well, and so it's something that's tough because I think a lot of... um, teams think, first of all, they don't even, a lot, some don't even like grasp, the major leagues do, but they they don't kind of grasp, I I would say it's common in esports, so they don't get that you have to get a visa to be able to work. Um, But then they think, well, can't you get them in by tomorrow? And it's like, no, (laughs) we're talking kind of minimum two weeks and probably more realistically four weeks. And that includes all of these different steps. So it's a different landscape Absolutely no question about it.
4: H- has, that, has this sort of contrast happened with other administration changes?
3: No, it's got, it actually just progressively got better and better and better and better until 2016. And I would say in 2016, pre-election, it was very predictable. I mean, somebody could say to me, how long will it take to get a P visa or a green card or whatever? And I was very good at predicting how much time. Now it's like, I don't know. I don't know. World I said I talked to a patent attorney and, and and I said, how long will it take to get this patent? And and he said, I don't know, it could be six months, might be six years. And I went, Oh, that's like my life.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Can't predict. Yeah.
2: Sounds
3: grueling. Let's hope it gets a little better next year. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh,
1: so, maybe, um I wanted to talk to you about a recent USADA decision that you served as the chair on the panel for. Um, it's a big decision that he, probably nobody in this room knows about. Um, Alberto Salazar um, was just found in violation and was banned from his duties as the head of the Nike Oregon Project. Um, and it's, I think Oregon. it's probably, sorry, Oregon. 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 Oh. Um, I mean, I think it's probably one of the biggest cases USADA's ever brought next to Lance Armstrong that no one's ever heard of. And just volume wise, it was like something like 5,700 pages of transcripts and 2,000 exhibits and 30 witnesses. And um, I had the good fortune of going through some of those for an ancillary case. But um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the case, your decision, I mean, within the parameters that you're allowed to speak about it.
4: Um, Okay, I think we should back up a little bit and describe this, that the uh, case that Lauren's referring to is an anti-doping case against a coach, a former marathoner who is an employee of Nike, and he's a coach for a running program that Nike supports and has on their corporate campus called the Nike Oregon Project for distance runners. So I can talk about it a little bit in the sense of generic things. I can't talk about anything outside of the decision. I can talk about the news coverage, (laughs) which luckily hasn't mentioned my name too many times. Yeah, they refer to it as a USADA decision. And I just want to contrast something that you just said. So uh, it's not a USADA decision. USADA is the prosecutor. USADA is the United States Anti-Doping Agency. And Alberto Salazar is the respondent. It's an arbitration. With the Armstrong decision, because Armstrong refused to fight the, the charges, there was no hearing uh, USADA simply wrote the justification for its handling of Lance Armstrong without any opposition. Whereas the, our decision, which is public record, is is a adversarial is the reflection of an adversarial proceeding. So, if you think about it, it's. Pretty straightforward when an athlete is charged with an anti-doping violation, there's a positive test normally. And so under the WADA code and the principle of strict liability, if it's found in your body, to oversimplify, you have to explain it or you're banned for four years, too bad. So what happens is in an athlete case where there's an analytical positive is the athlete has to explain what happened. He has to say or she how it got in her system and what the circumstances were that would allow that penalty to be reduced. In the case of a coach, he can dope all he wants. It's not about that he tested positive. It's about what he did with his athletes. And the World Anti-Doping Code has a whole bunch of provisions that are not about a positive test. So uh, administration, tampering, trafficking, um, which we found him to do all of those. But the way that the press covered it is as if he was feeding his athletes uh, prohibited substances. And that's not what we found. The press is really not reliable. Not only the (laughs) press, but the IOC. The IOC, the International Olympic Committee, reads the press apparently and doesn't have anybody read the decision. And they get all panicked about, oh my God, we have to look at all these athletes who were there. Later, I saw a IOC um, missive where they said that Because these athletes, he was constantly, and this is in our decision, feeding them uh, or or providing them with with, uh, prescription drugs, not prohibited substances, prescription drugs, without a prescription. So from that, the IOC says, okay, those athletes don't know what they were given, so we're going to go back and pull all their samples and test every single one of them again. Yeah, which is, that surprised me. Um, So anyway, the the burden of proof is on the anti-doping agency to show that this coach violated these provisions, but of course, how are they going to show that? So that's what Lauren is describing. I mean, in the hearing room, so we had seven full days of hearing, five of them here in Los Angeles that went for 10 hours of hearing time. So that doesn't count lunch or comfort
3: Brakes. breaks <laughs>
4: <laughs> or tennis, <laughs> or sometimes they, they were so interested in getting all of their time that sometimes they wanted to get a pause when we were trying to connect a witness by video or by phone. Anyway, they were long days which I hadn't counted on at all. I was driving from home back and forth to downtown, big mistake. But anyway, um, so I wanted to read one paragraph from the decision in case any of you have any, were any of you aware of this case before? Okay. Couple, no? A few people. <laughs> yes?
3: A few folks.
4: Okay. So maybe this paragraph won't be that interesting. But in case you read about it again, this is from the decision. It's our final paragraph. The panel notes that the respondent, that's Alberto Salazar, does not appear to have been motivated by any bad intention to commit the violations the panel found. In fact, the panel was struck by the amount of care generally taken by Salazar to ensure that whatever new technique or method or substance he was going to try was lawful under the World Anti-Doping Code. With USADA's witness, this is one of their employees, characterizing him as the coach they heard from the most with respect to trying to ensure that he was complying with his obligations. The panel has taken pains to note that Salazar made unintentional mistakes that violated the rules, apparently motivated by his desire to provide the very best results and training for athletes under his care. P.S. That is not a violation of the World Anti-Doping Code. (laughs) Unfortunately, that desire clouded his judgment in some instances when his usual focus on the rules appears to have lapsed. The panel is required to apply the relevant law the World Anti-Doping Code and its positive law enactments in the rules of International Sports Federations in discharging its duty, and here that required the panel to find the violations it did. So the way the press covered it is Alberto Salazar is running around shooting his athletes with drugs, and that's just not the case.
3: That's not (laughs) at all the
4: case. That's not
1: well, and I don't think it helped that Nike shut down the program the day after the decision. I mean, it it had been there for twenty years. It's the most winningest track and field program in the country. So, I but think. But they don't
4: have a coach. Yeah. What are they going to do? I know, but they could have gotten another coach. He's once. Oh, I should explain that. So mm-hmm. once a coach is found to have violated the World Anti-Doping Code, the sanction is it's called a period of ineligibility so he is ineligible to serve in that role for x amount of time for us it was four years was our finding so he can't work as a coach
1: he had athletes at the worlds and he couldn't go coach them and they revoked it right away so they were left stranded yes You guys should go look it up. It's really interesting, the story of of the project and the runners and Hmm. Alberto Salazar.
2: For those of you who took your CLE materials, it's also the full case is provided for you. That is the bulk of this It'll help you fall
4: asleep if you need (laughs) (laughs) it.
2: 134 pages. Yeah. If you want to learn how a cast case is written, um, you can usually skim through a lot of it until you actually get to the decision portion.
4: Yeah.
2: But, but, this,
4: but this one, because there were so many charges, we had to um, organize it in an unusual way yeah. in the sense that normally you go through the whole case and then the findings at the end. in this case, the findings throughout the decision because we deal with each of the different charges. Yeah.
2: Thank you. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit to talk about the Olympics, because as we mentioned, um, LA will be the host of the Olympics in 2028, and all of our panelists um, are involved uh, in key key portions of making that happen. Um, So sticking with you, Mady, if you could talk about some of the issues facing LA 2028, including the sponsorship sponsorship rights for the IOC um, and the complications of the interplay between various rights packages for the IOC versus LA 2028 specifically, because they're not the same thing, right?
4: Okay. That's a very mean subject. (laughs) Uh, All right. So let me explain how to explain this. All right. So, um, the international Olympic committee sanctions every city who hosts the Olympic Games. As part of that sanction, the IOC holds back certain things that are money generating. Uh, they hold back the television rights. The IOC grants all the television rights worldwide. They hold back certain sponsorship rights and those are designated up front, sort of. So the IOC says, we have the following sponsors. We're going to c- control these categories for the next, however, whatever the time period is before those Olympic Games, maybe because those sponsors may or may not still have a contract with the IOC when the Olympic Games actually happen. So that there's a fluidity about the categories, but there is the principle in place that a certain number of categories will be held back by the IOC. So then... For LA-28, for example, there's the U.S. Olympic Committee. So the U.S. Olympic Committee operates in the territory of the United States, and the U.S. Olympic Committee has sponsors. And those sponsors have exclusive categories. Some of those sponsors are the worldwide partners that come from the IOC because they're worldwide. They get, well, that's an overstatement too, but they get mostly the whole world. Just to oversimplify. Um, so now you're LA-28, like, what are you going to do? How are you going to make money? And um, what happened in 84, in, at the 84 Olympic Games, it was slightly different. The IOC wasn't involved, but Los Angeles, which is who I worked for, and the United States Olympic Committee were both operating in the same territory trying to sell rights. And we were, in essence, competing with each other and fighting with each other on a consistent and regular basis. I had so many fights with that lawyer for the USOC. But anyway, um, so the IOC watching this, in particular in Atlanta, adopted as part of the bidding process a requirement that the bidding city, when granted the bid, enter into an agreement, a joint marketing agreement with the local Olympic Committee. So in this case, the US Olympic Committee. So LA-28 is obligated and has entered into an agreement with the US Olympic Committee. But what they've done is kind of revolutionary because what they've decided to do is pool everything. So now if you are a sponsor of the US Olympic Committee, you get the rights to the LA games, which is basically the LA games logo and the right to affiliate with the logo. The IOC is completely clean venue. It it doesn't mean you get signage. Like the world cup sponsorship is all signage. The Olympic games is completely clean. There's no signage in theory, except in boxing. That's a whole other story. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so, uh, in addition, one of the things that happens when you enter into either of these agreements with the U.S. Olympic Committee or the International Olympic Committee or the organizing committee is there's an exclusion. And that exclusion says, okay, so we've sold the broadcast rights. And in this case, it's NBC. And guess what? They have the right to create a composite logo and they can sell exclusive sponsorships. Well, not necessarily in your category. You, Okay. So they're supposed to come to you first and offer it to you first, but if you don't take it, they can go and sell it. Okay, this is not a pretty picture. So what this joint group has done is they've entered into an agreement with NBC. And now all the rights for the first time ever are going to be packaged in one one place. So it'll only be the big companies. It'll be the companies with money. And um, I'm watching.
1: It's, groundbreaking.
4: it's very <laughs> groundbreaking that it MC is universal. Yeah. Um, I don't want to put Alana on the
1: spot, but Casey Wasserman obviously is the head of the LA 2020 organizing committee. And just because he's your boss doesn't mean you're working on it as well. But are you working on it?
5: Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> no, the only thing that we do. Um, Thank you. The only thing that we do. Um, at Wasserman Media Group, with respect to the Olympics, is try to make sure that our athletes are in compliance with Rule 40, which is um, a rule that's, that says they kind of block out a certain rule amount of that's time. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, there's like a blackout period of what sponsorships um, Olympic athletes participating in the relevant games can have during this, you know, period around the Olympics. And so we have to navigate through that and make sure that our clients are not in violation of that rule and that their partners who are not Olympic, spark, uh, not Olympic um, sponsors or USOC sponsors can congratulate them and not be in violation and and, you know, both of them get Find or I'm not. I'm not totally sure well, what the okay. what can, the can, penalty can I just is. can us talk but, yeah. about this because
4: <laughs> this rule makes me crazy. <laughs> the, the The principle of the rule, even though I'm on the sponsorship side, the principle of the rule is to have the Olympic sponsors have all the glory and get the benefit of their exclusivity. But it's to the point of absurdity. What it says is, if you're an athlete who's who's a I don't know unknown company athlete. So not Nike, because Nike's now joined the fold, but let's say Adidas. So you go and you compete in the Olympic Games, and um, the rule reads that during the time that she's competing in the Olympic Games, Adidas is supposed to go around to all their stores everywhere and take down any posters with you on it. That's absurd. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm like... I, <laughs> I was actually involved in writing the rule, but <laughs> I, I, I didn't realize they were going to get this carried away with it. But anyway, um, so there have been various accommodations, but the the violator in that instance is you,
5: right? So they they've changed it for this the for the Tokyo to where it's both. it's not just the
4: athlete, yeah, both, but both both are engaged in the process. Yeah. But it's, it's say, so ridiculous.
5: And so now so now you can, you know, Adidas could congratulate the athlete, but you can't have, you know, the Olympic logo and you can't show medals, you can't show them on the podium. So there's a little bit more that, you know, you a, a, non, yes, that a non-participating <laughs> brand can can do, but it still is navigating these very complex waters. And so a lot of our Olympic athletes um have a ton of partners who are not going to be Olympic sponsors. And we just, we are usually the ones that are posting things on social media for them. Um, or we create the posts and on behalf of the brand. And so we just have to help them.
4: But see, it's really frustrating because Alana's dealing with elite level athletes who actually have the power of your representation. But there are all these athletes who don't have, They they're, they are thrilled to be, on that stage, mm-hmm. at the Olympic Games. They're never going to be heard from again. This is their one opportunity to be in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the, the this loosening up of Rule 40 has happened because... So the president of the IOC is a German guy named Thomas Bach. What should happen but that the German athletes went to the German antitrust organization or whatever, authority, and appealed Rule 40 and lost. I mean, the athletes won Rule 40 lost in Germany while Thomas Bach is president of the IOC. <laughs> so so they changed the rule. And they said, OK, each of the NOCs can figure it out. I mean, I'm simplifying. But um, I, it's to me, it's not enough. And it bugs me because, like I was snarking about boxing, I mean, you'll see athletes like track and field athletes wearing Chanel earrings or you know violating the rule in little ways and it just it's not i don't know it's their one chance on the stage i just feel a little bad for cuz the rule's not equitable for everybody no the people who are supporting those non-known athletes need to get something yeah. from that i think yeah.
2: anyway I agree. (laughs) Um, We're just going to follow up with one more question here and then open it up to everybody that might have a question. Um, So, Kathy, with regards to the Olympics, is there anything different in terms of the procedure or how you approach something like the Olympics where understandably pretty soon, well, not immediately, but soon enough, depending on what the situation might be, you might have to start these applications soon.
3: I don't know that they don't have to get a visa.
2: So <laughs> I, I was going to say it's interesting because
3: I was going to say I don't I would think that so I did not know that there was a, okay. an exemption so you don't have to get the normal P visa. Or well, that's
4: again. You can use a B. It's kind of a it's kind of a trick. So when uh so the Olympic games are bid by a city. But the city the city's bid is brought to the bidding table through the National Olympic Committee. Mm-hmm. And um, in most countries, what that means is it's the government. Mm-hmm. So as part of the the conditions to get the games, you are required to comply with various ridiculous things. And one of them is, I, by the way, I work with the IOC. I work with the USOC. <laughs> the, the, they all know how I feel about this. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so one of them is that all the people who are qualified, the athletes, the coaches, the officials need to begin to be able to get in without a visa. Okay. So, but,
3: okay, go ahead.
4: In 84, Mm
3: -hmm.
4: our government relations department, I can't remember why I was involved in this, was, oh, I know why. They were telling me the, what was happening, so the, the way it works is if you qualify for the games, mm-hmm. you're put into the um, into the entry list by name. So you're yeah. named. Yeah. And so there there's a, a whole series of things you have to provide. You have to provide your name. You have to provide your passport number. Yes. Blah, blah. So when that comes to the U.S., guess what? Somehow it ends up with the State Department. Yes. Well- even though you're supposed to automatically be entered. Mm-hmm. Then if you're a criminal... Yes, things start to happen. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> Even though you qualified, yes. and we've read some of these stories about yes. you know some of these guys who are supposed to get to the Olympic Games and somehow uh, that exemption didn't quite work out the way. Yay. Anyway, so it's a it's a it's a uh,
3: facade. But the U.S. government has signed on to it, so I, I think they're still going to need a visa because, and that's why it goes through the Department of State. Olympic but it's an ex- family
4: accreditation. Ex-band.
3: What you have when mm-hmm. you get when you when you Go sign that
4: Department form, uh-huh. what you get in return is an accreditation that serves as a visa. Okay. What happens between you're filling out the entry form, which is no longer called that; it has some long, complicated name. But you fill out the entry form. And then it goes to the organizing mm-hmm. committee and they hand it off, you know, by stealth to the State Department or whatever. Because it's usually a government that you're sending it to in other countries like Japan, China, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: wherever. So then I think it's a division of it's, it's definitely in conjunction with Department of State. And I was going to say the two areas that I would say is the most cautionary for 2028 when the Olympics come is not quite so much the the, the athletes who are just run-of-the-mill athletes, but athletes with criminal issues. Yeah. That's going to be a problem um, because you have to then get a waiver. And we actually did this and worked really hard in getting a waiver for a basketball player, NBA player, who's going to play a game in the UK the year before the Olympics in the UK. And, and it was extremely Extremely difficult to get the waiver for this. Because he player. was a criminal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he. Yeah. I'm just asking. He that had been difficult correct. Or? He had been convicted of a misdemeanor, and I won't say what no, it is because otherwise everybody will know who it is. Um, but so yes, and so and what we kept saying was, you you have to give this guy. A a waiver because like he's he's going to be coming, he's going to be coming the Olympics in a year from now, and he's on this uh, NBA team that's coming in, and they were like, nope, nope, and and we it ended up being political pressure to do that. So athletes who have a criminal issue, that's a problem because then you have to get the waiver, Um, and the other is family members because, and I think really it's going to don't count. Correct, and so family members who want to come or just um, tourists who want to come to the Olympics, they're gonna to have to go through the regular B process in some place in, in for some countries, probably a, a fifth of the com- countries you can get a waiver of the visa ro- requirement, but you're still coming in and so you have to get a visa. And now, currently, there's these new public charge uh, issues about whether or not you can get a visa, so you have to show you have enough money and insurance and all these different things. There's now been a, um, a temporary restraining order, against that. But, you know, who knows in 2028 who's going to be president? Sorry. And the other thing is Department of State right now kind of echoing what I was saying earlier, is absolutely decimated. And so there's no kind of big policy going on with respect to the typical issues of visa grant and all of that. Pompeo, I think, is a little distracted with some other things right now. And there there isn't the mill management in the Department of State, and they've lost a lot of the policy people. And so it's really you could call it rogue, it's individual officers who are making decisions about things without any policy right now. And so currently, it's a very uh, fluid and complicated and, and flip a coin whether a visa is going to be issued at the consular post when someone goes in for the visa, which you need at certain times. And so I think depending on who's president, whether or not the Department of State is rebuilt, et cetera, by 2028, those are the issues that are going to be bubbling around.
4: And, and, you know, they they get really weird around the time of the Olympic Games, not because they're trying to be obstructive, but without naming names, um, a USOC high official uh, arrives in London early for the Olympic Games, and she has children, and so her children arrive later with the nanny, and the nanny's like 18 years old, and she gets to the booth, and the guy behind the booth at the airport says, so why are you coming here? Oh, I'm working. Uh, And so they put her, they hold her at the airport. They won't release her because she doesn't have a visa. Right. So, you know.
3: (laughs) And the other thing is you talk about the the players coming through or the athletes coming through, and that's to to perform in the Olympic Games. But if they're going to go in Jimmy Kimmel, and make money that way, or if they're going to a sponsorship is complicated, as you just said. But if it's a sponsor, they're going to actually come in, and it's and it's an acceptable sponsorship that they're going to wear or promote. Then they would need a visa for that piece. So that's right. It's
4: completely. It's not. They're not there by virtue of their Olympic accreditation. Correct. They're engaging and so, in some other activity. Correct.
3: correct. And yeah. so it, it, you have to, with each athlete, what are they going to do while <laughs> here? And so that's, yeah, so. We'll be talking. Yeah. That's like, yeah. yeah, It's complicated.
2: So I just want to say thank you so much to our panelists. And there's some refreshments, I think. So if you want to talk with them afterwards, please do
0: so. Thank you for listening to a Conversation with series podcast hosted by the Biederman Entertainment and Media Law Institute. For more information, check out the links in the show notes. You can also find information on upcoming conversations at www.swlaw.edu. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear new episodes and give us a rating and review if you can. We hope to have you back again for more conversations. Bye until the next time.